Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds and it is the very first show of 2022. And so today we're finding out what the months ahead have in store for us. In the sphere of culture, I'm not in- <laughs> intending to set out a policy for greater 2022 generally. Um, we'll be getting a sneak peek at the exhibitions, TV shows and books coming out this season that we should have on our radar. Here to tell us what's going to be giving us square eyes is the TV critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan. John Mitchinson, co-founder of Unbound Publishers, will be recommending the books we should see out the rest of the winter with. And joining me to share the art show she's most excited about is the freelance art journal Analyst, Emma Rose Abrams. Welcome all to the programme. Hello. Hi. We're sort of splitting the love here. John's down the line. Hi, John. <laughs> Hi. Lovely Hi, to Rob. hear your Good dulcet you tones. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice way to kick off the new year with all of you guys around the table and down the line as well. We're going to start possibly cosy, possibly not confines of TV with Scott Bryan. With Hi, my Scott. non-dulcet tones. You're exceptionally dulcet tones. You're taking us first of all, I understand, to the ironically named Happy Valley, Scott Bryan. I mean, this is a show that I have a lot of love for. A lot of people have a lot of love for. Um, the show, of course, starring Sarah Lancashire, written and created by Sally Wainwright, has had two series, first in 2014 and then in 2016. Had 8 million, then came back with 9 million. Huge for the BBC. They announced that it would now be having a first season and this will be the last season in the trilogy and this show has been also shown around the world on Netflix it's been massive in Europe and I think the real crux about what makes it so good is as well as it's being incredibly well written incredibly well acted it's incredibly Yorkshire as well that is so good but it's the twists and the turns it's about a police sergeant dealing with the death of her teenage daughter dealing with her sister who's a recovering alcoholic whilst also bringing up a um, grandson, Ryan, who becomes more and more difficult. And it also feels at a time when there are constant revivals of mm-hmm. absolutely everything. And it never ends. Gossip Girl, Frasier, Dexas, Sex in the City, uh, <laughs> yeah. Saved by the Bell, Battlestar Galactica. This is a show that actually I really want to come back. <laughs> and this, and they, But they're kind of being fairly sparing by contemporary TV standards with just keeping it to a trilogy, kind of keeping the story in the arc, I suppose, that the original writers intended, I suppose. Yes. I yeah. mean, Sally Wainwright has been working on other dramas and she said that she's been distracted by those but has always been meaning heading towards a final of this show and it also feels that despite its overwhelming popularity it isn't a drama that is coming back purely because its fans want to it kind of feels very much a a drama that is the intention of the actual writer and also the obvious loose ends that need to be tied up so I think that it is well placed and I think it's something that's really nice about the position of British drama. This is not massively expensive. It's just really well written. And I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at a drama. Yeah. So long as it's good, that's the thing. It's that's... got some reality to it. It's yeah. got some grit. Grit is a word that is often used with Happy Valley, isn't it? It's like <laughs> yeah. other adjectives. Come on, critics. Not Scott Bryan, obviously, but other critics. Come on, do give us something other than gritty mm. for, for Happy Valley. And Sarah Lancashire is fantastic in, in the sort of lead role, right? I mean, yeah. in, in this. I mean, she's kind of really carved out a kind of unlikely niche for herself in, as this, as this Completely. detective. Yeah. And it's incredibly authentic as well. There are many times in which I keep thinking that she is a real police sergeant. And it's also the fact that the family dynamic 
is really interesting as well. And the role that she has within the community feels really real. And I also think that you see endless amounts of dramas that are set in London, endless amounts of dramas set at that feel quite formulaic within police procedurals over and over again. Even five years on with endless police procedurals, and I've reviewed hundreds of one, this one stands out in its own right. This one feels very distinctive. So that is Happy Valley coming to the BBC and I think Netflix internationally. Yes, it is, yes. Uh, we don't quite know when, but it's something to look out for. 2022, yeah, this, later this year. Yeah, yes, indeed. Talking of formulas... We're back with a vengeance to the Lord of the Rings, Scott. So the reason choice. why I'm cho- yeah. I've chosen Amazon's Lord of the Rings trilogy mm-hmm. is because it's pretty much everything Happy Valley isn't. It is <laughs> the complete opposite end. I'm intrigued by this, not because I think it's going to be good. For me, sums up and reflects where TV is at the moment. The idea that you can spend so much money and it will work. Yeah. All the streaming giants have been doing it. There's billions being spent on content. They're going for growth at absolute any cost of quality sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't you know apple's been getting into the game netflix has been getting into the game and amazon have been desperate for a show that becomes as a big talking point as game of thrones was yeah you know on a weekly basis some shows have sort of worked the wheel of time recently was kind of okay but with this they've spent a billion dollars reportedly for five seasons and as a means of comparison a billion dollars is £725 million. Pounds. The BBC's budget for BBC One is £900 million. So they've spent <laughs> yeah. nearly an entire BBC One channel budget in the UK, which is one of the biggest public service yeah. broadcasters in the world, for one show. For five seasons. Five seasons. So we're looking at, and what's the season? That's ten, eight to ten shows. Well, there's a lot maybe. of money, yeah, in, yeah, in the rights as well. They've been involved in J.R. Tolkien's thing. So this is the thing. It could be amazing and fantastic and hit the right notes and, and all, all of this stuff. But you are putting a lot of eggs in one basket in the hope that it does. I was going to say they're throwing quite a lot of mud at a wall and hoping it'll stick. Yeah. Eggs, mud. Whatever it is, it's a, it's a mixed metaphor, my friend Scott. And sometimes Messed it up. John I can hear John laughing, uh, and a genuinely erudite man down the line cackling at us. <laughs> I'm just thinking it's that that's the old the, the old thing. You know, what was the line? Uh, if you put all your eggs in one basket, watch that. Yeah, basket. exactly right. And John, you've kind of you've covered. I think it was the Return of the King on backlisted. We did, we did. the little known Tolkien. Gem, Lord of the, from Lord of the Rings. Obviously, I know that you, you and Andy, kind of love those books, but with some reservations, I suppose, as well. When is too much Lord of the Rings? I wonder, from your point of view, as a publisher. I have to say, I found the Hobbit pretty hard going as, as a yeah. cinematic experience. Yeah. It kind of felt it was sort of, you know, pumped up on steroids. A rather thin story, but rather a thin story. Yes, um, it was kind of thin gruel, wasn't it? Spread over three episodes. It, yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm always up for another in- interpretation. And it, I haven't read enough about it, but is it like a prequel, Scott? Is it kind of... It's not the same story, is it? It is. It is from the universe. It's set before The Hobbit, before The Lord of the Rings, but before the bit when you're shouting, just get on the bloody boat, which for me consisted <laughs> the entire last part of the trilogy. <laughs> so we're in this sort of Silmarillion territory, yes, right? This is yes. sort of early stuff. So yeah. it's before the ring and, and Gollum and throwing it in and losing the will to live, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Scott. Let's see which, which, side of the bread, which side of the bread Scott wants is whatever it is. I've, I've done it again. I've mixed them. Metaphor, you know. 
So that's Amazon's big hope for 2022. That's coming out. I guess that's an awesome thing for them, right? Yes. I mean, if it works, I think Amazon are also spending a lot of money on UK productions. They have been spending a lot on global originals, hoping to have big shows globally. But over the next year, like many production companies are, they're spending so much money in the UK because of tax breaks, but also because they realise that we're phenomenal in terms of culture, but also stuff that becomes popular abroad. So expect a lot of UK commissions. It's not just going to be Clarkson in 2022. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to go into my relationship with Clarkson's farm. Let's not go there. I get a guilty only got watch. Thirty minutes. <laughs> a very guilty watch. In fact, I'm being taken in. I'm being clapped in irons and taken out of the studio. Right, we better get to your third choice, Scott, which was new to me: inventing Anna. Yeah, so this is going to be made by the uh, Shonda Rhimes, who of course is behind Bridgerton, and this is one of those shows that I've picked out because it goes into true crime in an original way, but it's also what has been happening a lot in TV re- recently, which is a firstly a piece that then gets turned into a really popular podcast that then gets turned into a. TV TV show and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't there was most recently Will Ferrell did the shrink next door for Apple TV plus this is inventing Anna which looks at the fake heiress a Russian-born convicted fraudster who between 2013 and 2017 she pretended that she was a heiress under the name Anna Delvey and she ended up saying to many people that she had 60 million dollars and pretending that she had a very big trust fund and she was a very well connected socialite but actually she had none of it she had conned her way into it but also conned a lot of people out of a lot of money yeah it's a huge story in the art world because um, lots of those people she conned were in the art world and her main kind of operations were all kind of around like big things like Venice Biennale and things like that and she just kind of booked herself into suites and then kind of go oh can you just lend me the money for that and <laughs> yeah. then just leave by yeah okay so by so i mean a lot of, of these huge art transactions are all done on credit right i mean yeah. there's not you know there's a promise to pay i suppose on a lot of these big things exactly and you get these kind of you can kind of she almost did it though i think it, she was so close to getting that last i don't want to spoil the story mm. that last huge loan which would have meant that she would have had an institution in New York if she'd have managed to pull that off but it just didn't work. Well I mean this is the fascinating thing I think and you see it with sorry to make it a bit more down market but with like a Tiger King for example is when something becomes so popular that it ends up affecting the people who are involved in this and this is I think fascinating because when this drama will get made obviously she could end up having quite a bit of money because of the press that gets caused about it because of the media appearances (laughs) that gets caused about it so it's it is always I find it weird when something that's that is set in the real world gets fictionalised or put into something that becomes popular that then affects how the course of things t- take place, if that makes sense. So Scott's final choice there was Inventing uh, inventing Anna. Is that... What, where is that? That's out quite soon. Is that net, is that it is a Netflix, Netflix show. Yeah. And, you know, fingers crossed, it's Netflix, so who knows about the quality, but the fact that it comes from Shonda <laughs> Rhimes normally suggests that it is actually quite good. It's got some sort good. of hallmark on it yes. somewhere. Sometimes you have to really search for it with Netflix shows. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. That was a a rip-roaring run-through of next year's TV through the prism of just three programmes. No pressure. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed. John, it was nice to hear you down the line talking about The Lord of the Rings during Scott's TV roundup. Where on earth are we going in the world of publishing in 2022? I know, well, the first thing is uh, something that you want to talk about. It's called Learning from the Land. There's occasionally a bit of of earth under the Mitchinson fingernail. I'm afraid um, so. 
Is this a Bossman's holiday for you? This one? I see. This is a. I see. This is a bit of a slight corrective to Clarkson's Farm. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's by a brilliant, I think, really a remarkable historian called Vron Ware, who's better known really for books on um, the most famous book I think hers was Beyond the Pale: White Woman, Racism, and History. So she's a kind of a historian of post-colonial history in particular, and of feminism. So it's quite odd. That's not really what you usually get when you get a book about the countryside or the British countryside. And what I love about this book, it's called Return of a Native, is that she is is from Hampshire. She grew up in a, a small village in Hampshire. And it's a sort of personal story of her growing up, but it's also forensically kind of detailed attempt really to show why rural England isn't irrelevant. Why, you know, she takes the history right back into, into sort of medieval history and the growth of the parish and, and a, a much more democratic sort of, of way of operating that has gradually over the, over the years has been bought out and ground down, literally, um, you know, overplowed, overfertilized uh, to feed the kind of the, the more of capitalism. So it's a sort of, yeah, really quirky way of looking at the English countryside, but also politically. I mean, her scholarship is extraordinary. You know, she structures it a little bit like kind of William Cobbett's Rural Rides. You know, there's 10 chapters and each one has a kind of, uh, uh, you know, there's a little set of this is where we're going in this chapter. But you get a kind of a, a sort of a tessellation, I think, of really interesting information. And by the end of it, you're left in no doubt that, you know, to, uh, to really understand our future, we have, to, we have to start engaging with what's happening in the countryside. In a funny way, Clarkson had a, bit, a bit of that. It's really, really hard to make money out of farming. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're, we are, yeah. you know, we are screwing the environment. Even as we sit here now, it's still happening. This is a nightmare that hasn't gone away. And if you want to educate yourself, I mean... I guess that if you're going to kind of compare her to anyone, the the the, uh, the person who's she's most like, and I don't think she's written this kind of book before. It's it's is Patrick Wright, who's just re-released his brilliant book, The Village That Died for England. It's a sort of social history, but it's more than that. It's it's got a kind of a personal sort of directedness to it. It's neither a polemic nor is it in a sort of Georges Monbiot kind of way, but neither is it a straightforward history. If you want a hopeful book about, about British politics and British history, it's full of amazing stories. I mean, there's, there's stories of how, you know, chicken farming kind of took off in Hampshire and um, uh, talking of eggs and baskets. I mean, it's like, it's terrifying. It's a social history that I think, you know, anybody who sits on a train and goes anywhere in this country and wonders about all these strange factories and the strange little bits of industry what goes on out there this book explains it in I think a way that's that's accessible politically really kind of um, focused but also there is a personal story she's going back to visit her mum who's got dementia and it kind of hangs together beautifully I think Thank you, John. Um, that's wonderfully described. It's called Return of a Native, Learning from the Land. That's by Vronware. It's published by Repeater Books, and that's out in February. Next up, you've chosen Clover Stroud's next one, I suppose we'll call it The Red of My Blood. For listeners uninitiated in Clover Stroud's world, maybe you could just fill us in on, on who she is. OK, so uh, Clover's a, a writer and journalist, and she this is her third book. The first book 
was a sort of autobiography called The Wild Other, which was sort of about her relationship with nature. She's, she lives in the countryside again, but um, she's she had a very eventful childhood. Her mother uh, had a terrible riding accident and basically in a coma for 20 years, didn't never recovered and finally died. And her sister, Nell, of which more later, was started Gifford Circus. So that, the first book was, as I say, sort of nature memoir, shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize. The second book was a book about having, she's got five kids. It was about motherhood. And the third book, uh, The Red of My Blood, is about her sister Nell, who died two years ago. And it's about her, really, it's a grief memoir. And I have to say, grief memoirs are not my usually the thing that I would be recommending but this is of such an intensity I don't think I've read a book like it for a very very long time it's it's it takes you into the very minutiae of what losing somebody that you're very close to fearlessly looks at it goes through all the kind of you know that sense of being in a complete daze while all the all the arrangements are made not really being able she can barely remember what happens at the funeral and then I suppose the process of how she comes to terms with the loss it may be not everybody's kind of uh, idea of starting the new year with a book about death but my god if you I mean you know she really really she really writes about it in a way that makes you think deeply because it is a question let's be honest we all are going to have to face sooner or later uh, with ourselves but also with our with our loved ones she's an amazing companion on that process she she lays it out all in front of you and I think by the end of the book, you, there is a sort of you, you kind of share a strange, battered elation with her. It's it's an amazing story. So that's Clovis Stroud. Thanks, John. With the red of my blood, that's out in March, published by Doubleday. And finally, Patrick McCabe's Pogue Mahone. Um, this is one of yours, John. Um, published by Unbound. So tell us about this. This sounds lively. <laughs> it is. And the reason I'm talking about it is because I'm, 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 I'm it's the m- most exciting novel I've published for, I mean, 20 years easily, I think. Patrick McCabe, famous, probably famous for The Butcher Boy and Breakfast on Pluto. Both of them were made into feature films by uh, Neil Jordan. Both were shortlisted for The Booker. And then sort of Pat got into a, a kind of a holding pattern of writing books set in small town Ireland, did okay. But he's seen, I suppose, to, to some people, the, the idea that Patrick McCabe was going to come back with this incredible 600-page, insane kind of monologue of a book about the Irish in London. It's not, it's the first time he's written about about the Irish in London and the Irish in London are not a subject that's written about much in fiction it's really rich vein it's set mostly in the early 70s in a squat so it's full of prog rock it's full of brilliant it, finally it, yeah it's full of 70s it's full of 70s it's full of 70s music obviously there are there are IRA bomb campaigns in the background but it's about immigration. It's also about leaving leaving rural Ireland and finding yourself and building a community in, in London. It's a ghost story. There's a lot of exorcist in this. It really is one of the most terrifying books. It's got the kind of modernist credentials of a Ducks Newburyport, but it also has that kind of Max Porter, Lanny, you know, it's experimental without being in any sense, I think, difficult or to read. It's an amazing story. And the, the final horror revelation at the end is is worth waiting for wow that sounds amazing 
Even your description of it, John, crackles with some of the intensity of the the page, I think. Um, So that is Patrick McCabe's Pogue Mahone, and that's out in March, published by Unbound. John Mitchinson, thank you so much uh, for leading us through the world of literature in 2022, again, through the prism of just three books. Amarose, lovely to have uh, have you on the show. First thing in the year. We're starting with a bang and we're going to see Jennifer Packer at the Whitney. We are going to see Jennifer Packer, which started life at the Serpentine just down mm-hmm. the road. And this is a much bigger version of the same show. Jennifer Packer, I feel like it, this was one of the shows that got kind of a bit lost in lockdown. But she is just a phenomenal painter. Yeah. And she's like, I think she's 37. I think she went to Yale where she did her MFA. And the paintings, I'm trying to describe what I think is so amazing about these paintings. And the thing is, she's just a master painter. You look at them, you're like blown away. They're kind of figurative, but there's a kind of dream. There's kind of like a layer of emotion over them. Like they, like all the colours and shapes bleed into one another. And some of them are huge, like metres by metres. And they kind of like encapsulate whole universes in them. And she just is, she's just masterful as a painter. Technique, colour, boom, she's got it Yeah, she's got, got all. such a bold, confident yes. line about her. It's it's amazing. It's amazing stuff. What is the subject, if if such a thing can exist? Because, as you say, it's sort of figurative, but it's sort of abstract. It's yeah. a bit Richterous in places. It's kind of more figurative in places. She deals with, I feel like she does, she is a black American woman and she paints mostly black American people. Mm-hmm. And I think she's part of this movement of... Well, there just aren't that many paintings of black people or kind of (laughs) (laughs) and um, people are painting lots of them now, like across the world, like from Africa, US, like across the diaspora, everywhere. People are just painting and painting and painting, which is quite exciting, I think. And we'll probably look back on this and it'll be quite interesting to see this wealth of work that comes out of it. She is coming at it from a really kind of like high intellectual American standpoint. And her work is quite political. One of the most, her work's very moving, I think very touching. And the most touching thing I thought is she painted this kind of almost, it's a bit Rembrandt-y kind of these bouquets for people that have been killed by the police and they're just these beautiful bouquets and then you read the title and it's just like for Brianna Taylor yeah, and there's su- a such a good idea. I mean, they're, they're wonderful paintings, but it's such a strong idea for yeah. a, a series of works as well, isn't it? Because they look just kind of like, well, they don't look like decorative, you know, still lives of flowers or anything from the Dutch Golden Age or anything like that. But there is a sense that, yeah, you, you read you read the notes and yeah. they, they really it hits you straight between the eyes, doesn't it? It really does. It's amazing stuff. I mean, she's quite a young woman for an artist to be having these big shows, Serpentine, Whitney, um, and all the rest of it. Has she kind of sprung out the traps? Has she got a long career behind her? Is she just sort of coming into her sort of public form, as it were? I think she's coming into herself. It was her first institutional show, The Serpentine. Um, And I guess she's quite young for that. She is quite young for that. So she's been, she's not as young as some, but she's pretty young to be getting all this attention. If sometimes if you get those opportunities too early, it can kind of fall flat, but you just know that she's going to fill it. The show is called The Eye Is Not Satisfied With Seeing, Yeah. by the way. Yes. This is like, it's a really good title for a show. It's she's fantastic. Got, she's, got, she's got it all. Yeah, you she know. really does. Um, and I guess we're calling that a, it's a sort of survey show, isn't it? I suppose. It is a I mean, survey, yeah. but a very short survey. Okay. Because she, has, she hasn't been around. What everyone wants when they're buying a house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Um, it's you, you, you put it beautifully as well. It's really powerful stuff. It's at the Whitney. Um, from it's it's an autumn it's an autumn play. That's from the 30th of October 2021 onwards. And the artist is the brilliant Jennifer Packer. Thanks, Emma Rose. Well, you can introduce the next one. You're switching it up slightly. What, Stonehenge? Stonehenge. (laughs) (laughs) Talking of prog rock, let's dance around a four-inch version of it. (laughs) It's all I could think about when I was trying to make notes about this was Final (laughs) Tap. But I just think I'm so excited about this show and everyone I talk to is so excited about it. I just think partly because I think on the one hand, we're all a bit obsessed with cosmology at the moment. Mm. People are so into from people going Mm. and doing ayahuasca and tapping into Aztec kind of ideas and people kind of looking older religions, alternative religions, paganism. And Stonehenge just fits perfectly into that. <laughs> We're talking about the real one, the full-size, yeah. non, non-polystyrene actual it is, it version. It's a weird Stonehenge because I, I live nearby it. Like my fa- that's where my, my parents are. And you get so used to it, you get so conditioned to it, that you have to remind that it's such a unique place that no one really knows why it's there. And every time I go down the A303, it's like, oh, there's Stonehenge there. Okay, they're just... <laughs> Let's carry on. Yeah, kick, kick, kick. yeah, exactly. As you were, Stonehenge. Yeah, as you were for <laughs> tens of thousands of years. <laughs> so is this representing, I mean, obviously Stonehenge in the sort of 60s and stuff has a sort of an Aquarian, semi-Aquarian, the, you know, the associations of the Aquarian age and all the rest of it. This is a big, big blockbuster, well, wannabe blockbuster show at the British Museum, yeah. um, Amarose. Does it have a focus? Is it, I mean, because there are so many It's the world of Stonehenge. And like, yeah. when I say this, it sounds... It's they're contextualising Stonehenge okay. as best they can. <laughs> it's like spanning four thousand to one thousand BC. It's four hundred and thirty objects. The golden age yeah. for Stonehenge when yeah. you can touch it. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got objects from Italy, from Ireland, from Germany, and from around England. They have Sea Henge, which is usually in Norfolk, yeah. which is it's like a a kind of wooden version of Stonehenge. And it seems like these these circles, because they found... I was quite excited about the Durrington walls yeah. that they found and the shafts. Circles seem really important in terms of what the belief systems back then and, and the sun and the sky. And part of this exhibition claims to explore the relationship between all these belief systems at that time and the sky and what it meant. And there's a beautiful object which they've used on all the promotional materials, which just kind of is a kind of sky map like a tiny sky map, uh-huh. just very like green and gold, like beautiful thing. They made me think of Holy Mountain by Jodorowsky, giant oh, yeah. golden hat, which is like solid, <laughs> but um, with loads of kind of discs on it and then all these kind of costumes that really just look out of this world. And I re- and I think it's going to be really interesting just to see what the world was like in Europe at, at that time. And they're saying it's kind of casting a light on this golden age of British culture that we don't know much about. Sounds absolutely wonderful. I love the idea of this. Is it promising to lift any lids on the construction, the reason, all the rest of it, or is it sort of revelling in the beauty of some of the associations that can be made from it? I think it's more that. I think they're just laying out these different objects because it seems to be so much... It's very varied. a lot of jewellery, metal. Obviously, metal survives. Yeah. And it's also looking at how burials, because that's that's mostly 
where they find these things, but and kind of different kind of practices and beliefs in terms of how where people were buried and what they were buried with and stuff that because I guess it's that everything they find is dug up out of the ground, and so I guess it's just kind of aesthetics, how things looked and what they were made of, and trying to I mean. If you put in Stonehenge into Google, it's the mystery of. Mm. Yeah. Like, I guess they're just <laughs> painting a picture around it, which I think is lovely. And I do think people are so hungry for alternative belief systems at the moment. I'm really looking forward to what springs up around this exhibition. Okay. Amarose is channeling quite a lot there, I think. And I would say, as a local, if you go to um, Avebury, which is about five miles mm. down the road, it's a bit like Stonehenge, but you get to touch it. Because in Stonehenge, you have to be behind the rope, of course, and be quite far away. But Avebury is a small village that's constructed around very similar stones, and it goes round the whole village. And I think it's just way cooler. So I think it's lovely. We've local Avery, tourist guide. Avery's particularly Dorset and Wiltshire-based Salisbury local there, Salisbury Scott Bryan, biased. I can great. give advice about how to use the um, park and ride. You know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just here. I'm just Brilliant. here. Service journalism to a T. Thank you very much. No worries. Here to help. We're going back, Amma Rose, to New York City for your final choice uh, at the MoMA, Merritt yeah. Oppenheim. Yes. Yeah. One thing about Merritt Oppenheim, I think if people who don't know her, if you just, you will know this object, which is a furry cup and saucer with a spoon. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but she is a kind of surrealist. I don't get it. What? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, she's amazing. She's like a, um, a surrealist artist, friends with Andre Breton, Man Ray. She was nicknamed Mr. Oppenheim yeah. because she defies categorization. <laughs> and, um, her work is just full of humour, it's kind of feminist, it's quite sexy, it's got all these kind of elements to it. It's quite meaty. Yeah. But that's also they're that's very a good immediate. Word for it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you'll get like um a pair of high heels tied together with string with a kind of the little kind of chef's hats that you put on chickens' legs. Yeah. <laughs> and things like that. It was sort of she was kind of Sarah Lucas must have dug her work, I kind of feel. Yeah. You know. And she's so influential. Mm. And what I think is quite exciting about an exhibition of this size at 200 works of her work is how influential she is. I mean, if you look at, I was thinking, uh, painting, in painting at the moment, there's some quite exciting things, mainly coming out, I've, I think, maybe Germany, um, Poland, and this is artist, English artist, Rebecca Ackroyd, these kind of very feminist paintings, but full of humour. Mm. And they they have this same kind of X factor. And she's definitely influenced a lot of contemporary artists working at the moment. Um, and this kind of young sculptor as well, Anne Uppendahl. And she kind of makes these objects that are kind of furry. They look really comfortable. But if you kind of, if you tried to sit in the chair, you wouldn't be able to. There's just nowhere to sit. <laughs> <laughs> I like also that you can't read your own handwriting clearly. Yes, I know. I was like, oh. <laughs> Up and down. Up and down. The famous up and down. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, um, so, so this is interesting. And at the moment, we're kind of seeing practice as much as we're seeing materials. I, I presume this is yes. This is kind of using the full kind of it's armory the, of the moment. Sort of yeah, it's the capers. full gambit. It's a proper, and it's kind of based on an original show idea for a show she had of herself. Um, this is called my exhibition. This, yes, which is kind of cute and makes it sound like my first. 
Sony or something. <laughs> Merit Oppenheim, my exhibition, age three and three quarters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's going to be a big exploration across her practice, looking at photography, drawing, sculpture, ideas, and her life as well. She's amazing. And she said, I've got this in my notes, which I can read because it's on my screen. It's not in my handwriting. No one will give you freedom, said Merritt Oppenheim in 1975. You have to take it. Great quote. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's a brilliant quote. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I think we can kind of look back on these objects and think, oh, that's great. And that looks a bit like such and such, so and so. But when you think about the fact that she was born in 1913 and she made these things like throughout her life in the kind of 30s, 40s, like it's crazy. And it's so far ahead of her time. And it's so far ahead of her time that when you see the furry cup and saucer and you see the hairy chair, you think, which one came first? I don't actually know. <laughs> if you had to do a blind tasting. I hope that whatever happens, that that quote is taken out of out of this programme to use randomly across the radio station as a promotional vehicle for <laughs> weird things. It's Merritt Oppenheim. It's at the moment and that starts in October. But actually, I don't need to recap that because it's time to recap the whole show. Amarose Abram, thank you very much indeed. Um, To recap then, we heard about upcoming TV shows from Scott Bryan and they were Happy Valley, Amazon's Lord of the Rings and Inventing Anna. On books from John, we heard about Vron Ware's Return of a Native, Learning from the Land, Clover Stroud's The Red of My Blood and Patrick McCabe's Pogue Mahone. And the exhibitions we talked about were Jennifer Packer at the Whitney, The World of Stonehenge at the British Museum and Merritt Oppenheim just now at the MoMA. Thanks to my guests, Scott Bryan, John Mitchinson and Amarose Abrams, and to my producers, Holly Fisher and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you so much for tuning in.